You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, last weekend, after the Minnesota Twins dropped two playoff games in New York to the Yankees in just over 24 hours, I was listening to some local sports talk as these uh, very kind gentlemen were trying to describe for us how Twins fans felt after losing those two playoff games in New York. And everybody agreed that the word disappointed wasn't strong enough. Discouraged, maybe. And then one of the guys offered the term dejected. And everybody seemed to agree that dejected was the appropriate word for it. Despondent, perhaps. Downcast, depressed. It's interesting how in English, all these words for being down start with D. This conversation about the level of discouragement or dejection that Twins fans were feeling after losing to the Yankees again. It's like 16 in a row now in the playoffs since like 2004. The conversation was especially interesting to me because I'm planning, I'm preparing to preach Exodus 6 here coming up this week. And last week we saw at the end of chapter 5 how deeply discouraged Moses is. Disappointed doesn't cut it. Dejected is probably a better word for how Moses is feeling at the end of chapter 5. Maybe despondent, maybe depressed is the best term for it. At the end of chapter 5, Moses is at his lowest. Far more so than any level-headed Twins fan should be right now. Far more, I mean, I'm tempted to say infinitely more, is at stake with what Moses is going through than Twins fans. And we've seen in Exodus 1 how God's people were multiplying in Egypt and how Pharaoh feared their growing strength and began to oppress them as slaves, even killing the sons of God's people. Then in Exodus 2, we saw the birth of Moses. And this ironic and miraculous story about how Pharaoh's own daughter drew Moses up out of the river to save him, to rescue him, the river that otherwise would have killed him. And then Moses grew up, and at age 40, he aspires to be the deliverer for God's people, but perhaps he acts out of turn. And the people reject him, and Pharaoh tries to kill him, but then God draws Moses up out of Egypt. He rescues him from Pharaoh, and he puts him in Midian. And there Moses gets a wife, and he builds his life for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. And then we came to Exodus chapter 3, and Moses is now 80 years old in Exodus chapter 3, and God appeared to him in a burning bush, and God calls him to do the very work he wanted to do 40 years earlier, but then Moses uh, Moses failed in his first attempt at it. And understandably, after 40 years of second-guessing himself and all the humiliation and perhaps the deep discouragement, Moses doubts himself. But God persists. God means to use him. God's going to provide Moses' own brother as a place to fill in where Moses is weak. And so in Exodus 4, we see that God gives Moses these powerful signs to convince the people that this call is from God. This is not Moses' own initiative. This is from God. And at the end of chapter 4, Moses returns to Egypt, and we hear, this is chapter 4, verse 31, the people believed. 
and you can feel the momentum that's building. God has appeared to deliver his people, and he called Moses, and Moses had res has responded, and Moses has these signs, and the people believe, and now Moses goes to Pharaoh in, in Exodus chapter 5, and it all comes to a screeching halt. Pharaoh does not listen. He does not let the people go. In fact, he mocks Moses and his God. And added to that, he makes the people's slavery, harsh as it already was, more difficult. Now, they must continue to make the same number of bricks and provide their own straw. And so the people then turn on Moses. This is the end of chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, 21, they say to Moses, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And so at the end of chapter 5, Moses is deeply discouraged. Moses is dejected. He is despondent. He is at rock bottom emotionally. And you can hear the edge in Moses' words as he asks his questions, makes his complaints to God at the end of chapter 5. This is verse, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. Look there with me. Then Moses turned to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. It's hard to miss Moses' jaded, dejected tone here. It's accusatory. He asks why God has done evil. And he says, why in the world did you ever send me? This is a classic overspeak of somebody who's dejected. He says, since I came to Pharaoh, just, just one, one encounter. It's like it's been years. A few minutes. You have certainly not delivered your people at all. But despite Moses' dejection and deep discouragement, Moses does one simple thing right. It's really important. Verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord. It is not a sign of strength that Moses is so quickly shaken but it is a sign of health that Moses goes to God. He didn't turn elsewhere. He didn't quit and walk away. Moses turned to the Lord. So chapter 6 then, which you look at this morning, has two main parts to it. First, God answers Moses' words to reassure him and recommission him. This is verses 1 to 13. So this is God to Moses answering these complaints, these objections from the end of chapter 5. And then the second part of chapter 6 is this, what can you say, surprising genealogy that seems to come out of left field in verses 14 to 30. So now at the end of chapter 5, Moses has uttered his complaints and now in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, God responds. And here we're going to see five ways that God reassures his dejected servant. And this is, I'm not pretending here that this is the five ways you should always respond to somebody who's dejected, or the five ways that God always responds to someone who's dejected. But this is a significant circumstance. 
And we have some things we can learn here from how God responds to Moses at the turning point of the story of the Exodus. So let's look at five ways God reassures his dejected servant. Number one, God teaches Moses about the divine way. God teaches Moses about the divine way. This is verse one. Look with me again at verse one. This is where God begins his response to Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So God's response to Moses in Moses' pity party is not to grant the concern on the one hand and not to rebuke Moses on the other hand. Rather, God gives him a glimpse. First thing he says here, God gives him a glimpse into the ways of God. This is the same God who had said about Jacob and Esau, the older will serve the younger. This is the God who doesn't do things like humans, like we expect. This is the God who would say through Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, as Pastor Michael prayed. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The reason why these chapters at the beginning of Exodus unfold the way they do, as strange as they seem at times, from the birth of Moses to his call to the 10 plagues to the Exodus, is that God's ways are higher than human ways. A human didn't write this story. And God's ways are typically harder than we would have ever chosen for ourselves. And in the end, God's ways are better than we could have even imagined for ourselves. God says now in verse 1. See that in verse 1? Now. He says now because Pharaoh's refusal and the increase of the people's burdens are part of God's plan. Not only will God deliver his people from Egypt, but God will so utterly overwhelm and defeat Pharaoh that Pharaoh will send, even drive the people out. Now, God says, now, because Pharaoh has refused according to plan, and because he has acted wickedly to increase the people's burdens, now the deliverance will be even better. Now it'll be even more drastic. Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go will not only flip to permission, but Pharaoh will even send them out. He will even drive them out because God will so overwhelm and defeat him. Now, God says, because it's gotten worse, I will make it even better. It's such an important point for us to learn along with Moses about God's surprising way of doing things. God is not afraid to have things get worse before they get better. In fact, God delights to do it this way. We see it in Genesis, here in Exodus, throughout the rest of the Bible, one story after another of God delighting to make things worse, to make them better. This is just like God to do it this way. In the seeming setbacks of his people, God is producing a greater glory for them. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He takes longer than we would have chosen, just about every time. And in the end, he effects an even greater victory than we could have ever hoped. When we pray with Paul 
In Ephesians 3.20, we prayed this. God, do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or even think. When we pray like that and God answers those prayers, he doesn't usually take the path of least resistance. He doesn't usually cut corners. He doesn't usually make it easy or quick. He often leads down a more difficult, longer path than we would have chosen for ourselves, and he gives us an even greater victory and deliverance than we could have ever asked or even thought. So first, in verse 1, God teaches Moses about the divine way and affirms that things are going according to plan. That's number one. Number two, God rehearses what he has done. In verses 3 to 5, look with me again at verses 3 to 5. He rehearses what he has done. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So God rehearses what he's done in the past. Notice the past tense verbs here. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham. Verse 4, I established my covenant. And now there's a couple more actions that have ongoing implications, past actions with ongoing implications. This is verse 5. I have heard and I have remembered. So God's about to act. And in speaking reassurance and hope into Moses' dejection, God rehearses what he's done in the past. It's not the only thing God does, but it is a valid strategy. Speaking to someone in dejection, reminding them of the ways of God, reminding them of his faithfulness in the past, what he has done, rehearsing the great acts of God in history. This is why Moses would eventually write the book of Genesis, to tell the Exodus generation what God had done in the past in appearing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and establishing his covenant and why Exodus would be written for future people of the generations of God's people, that they would remember what God had done for them in this signature act of the Old Testament in the Exodus. For us today, this is what we're doing, remembering God's past acts. This is what we're doing every time we open the Bible. And secondarily, when we remind ourselves of God's specific manifestations of faithfulness to us personally in our lives, we are fighting discouragement and hopelessness whether we're feeling it or not, by remembering God's past faithfulness, which most certainly will continue in his perfect timing, not in our convenient or preferred timing. So at this point in history for Moses, the past acts of God to remember really were his appearing to Abraham and the patriarchs and establishing his covenant with them. But then, after the exodus this exodus would be the main past action for thousands of years for God's people to remember again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, turning back to Exodus to see who God showed himself to be in all his power. And now for us as Christians, we not only have the whole biblical history of God's past acts for his people, but we now have the single most significant act of God himself in the person of his son, giving himself for us at the cross to rescue us from our sins. That's why people would talk about 
preaching the gospel to yourselves daily or regularly, rehearsing God's great acts in history. There's more to say than just that. This is one of the things God does here for Moses. He rehearses what he's done in the past, number two. Number three, God promises what he will do. It's about the future now, making promises. He promises what he will do. And this is verses six to eight. Not only does he rehearse the past, but he says what he's about to do here in the future, what he promises. Now listen for seven I will promises here, seven times. This is sevenfold hope for Moses in verses six to eight. Verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So into Moses' dejection and deep discouragement, God speaks this seven-hold hope in the form of what he will do for his people. He will bring them out. He will deliver them, redeem them, take them to be his, be their God, bring them into the promised land, and give it to them for possession. He doesn't only remind him of the past, but he paints for them a vision of the future. And not just a possible or likely vision, but a reality that is as certain as God is God. Because when God makes promises about the future, it is only a matter of time. None can thwart his plans, not even the mightiest nation on earth. None can stay his hand, not even the world's most powerful ruler. There are two phrases here in verses six to eight, especially verse six, they're really significant. The first one is outstretched arm. You see that? Outstretched arm. And this is the first mention of what will become a refrain for God's people echoing throughout the Old Testament and bringing to mind the display of God's power at the Exodus and his display of power over all kings and over all nations. Moses will come back to the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God in Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, the Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. This God is the one God, and there are no bounds to his power. His hand is mighty, and his arm is outstretched, not shortened. This is an image of power, because if the arm is shortened, if you have this so-called power but can't extend it, can't do anything with it, can't stretch out the arm of the power, then the arm would be, you'd say, the arm is shortened, that he cannot say. This is what Moses does in Numbers eleven twenty-three. Isaiah will say, is, if this is God's story, Isaiah, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Isaiah 50, 20, 50 verse 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Psalm 15, this is Isaiah 59, 1. So the outstretched arm of God is about God's power on behalf of his people to save them, to show them mercy. And then that other phrase, the second phrase here, great acts of judgment. 
This refers to the exercise of God's power toward the wicked who oppress his people. This same phrase we'll see back again in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4 next week. This is Exodus 7, 4, when God says to Moses, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. These great acts of judgment are a reference to the ten plagues that are to come. We'll see in the weeks ahead. And in these plagues, among other things, God is judging Pharaoh and Egypt for their oppression and abuse of God's people. These, these aren't just miraculous signs. These are judgments from God on Egypt and on Pharaoh for how they've treated God's people. And now our, our modern say, naive ears might hear about these acts of judgment as functions of God's divine wrath, and we might think, oh my, what is that? Outstretched arm of power to save his people? Oh yes, that's good. But all this talk of great acts of judgment, does that make us squirm? Is it good news that God's omnipotence not only saves his people, but punishes his enemies? The answer is, yes, it is good news if you're part of his people. Because his saving his people with his extended, outstretched arm and his punishing his enemies by great acts of judgment go together. Because his enemies soon enough will, if they aren't already, assaulting his people. And a good father is not indifferent to someone assaulting his family. If a father doesn't protect his family from the wicked, he is not loving. To truly be loving means to leverage what power you have to protect your beloved from genuine harm. And God is a good father. And he is genuinely loving. So it is not only good news that he stretches out his arm to save his people, but also it is good news that he exercises his power to punish the enemies of his people with great acts of judgment. But the very heart of God's promises here, as we've looked at in verses 6 to 8, the very heart of God's promises is verse 7. And verse 7, remarkably, is not only about the future, which leads to our fourth. And I think this is the most important point about how God gives reassurance in dejection. Number four, God shows who he is. And this is verses 2, 6, 7, 8, 29. <laughs> the great significance of what God has done in the past and what he will do in the future is showing right now in the present, who he is as the great I am, present tense. The main thing that God has to say to Moses in his dejection is the main refrain of this chapter. And it's the key truth and reality that lies beneath the surface at every point. The first thing he says in verse 2. And the last thing he says in verse 8. And the heart of what he says in verses 6 and 7. And the summary statement he brings back, comes back to in verse 29. Namely, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. 
He says to Moses, I am the one who is. I am in the present. Not only have I been, not only will I be, but I am right now. And I am here with you. No matter how ashamed you are about your past, no matter how fearful you feel about your future, no matter how your enemies have mocked you, no matter how your own people have turned against you, I am Pharaoh and your own people may be against you, but I am for you and I am with you in your dejection and deep discouragement. Five mentions in this chapter of I am the Lord. Look at them with me. Verse two, God spoke to Moses and said to him, this is the first thing he says, I am the Lord. Then the last thing he's going to say in verse eight, we'll get to that in a minute. But verse 29, at the end of the chapter, the summary statement, I am the Lord. And then at the heart of it, this is verses six to eight again. But this time, as we go through verse six to eight, don't listen for the I will promises. We already did that. Now listen for the I am statements. Verses six to eight. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Last thing, I am the Lord. So in particular, the heart of verse seven is the main point of the whole Exodus. Jonathan alluded to this last week. And we're going to see it surface again and again and again in these chapters. Verse 7, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And not only will God's people know him through the rescue of his outstretched arm, but also the Egyptians shall know him by his great acts of judgment. In this refrain, we'll see it again and again, that you may know, that they may know that I am the Lord. It's both for the people of Israel and for the Egyptians. God's making himself known in mercy to his people and in justice to their enemies. And this is the bedrock reason. This is the consistent rationale that drives what God is doing in these chapters in the Exodus. This is why he works as patiently as he does. This is why he hardens Pharaoh's heart like he does. This is why he extends his judgment, parceling it out through 10 plagues instead of all at once. This is why he draws out the Egyptian army and draws them into the sea and drowns them just as they had drowned the Hebrew boys in the Nile. But God revealing himself in power through judgment to Pharaoh and Egypt is secondary. Primary is God's revealing himself in power through salvation to his people. God comes to his people, not only to free them from slavery, but to take them to himself. It's so important. I will take you to be my people, he says, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. God's main act in liberating his people from slavery in Egypt 
is revealing himself to his people that they might know him. The very reason for which they were created. What will they be liberated to once they come out from Egypt? Carnal living in a luxuriant land? That's a different form of slavery, perhaps a worse form of slavery. Rather, the new land will be a setting in which this main reality can happen of knowing and enjoying God, of worshiping him. The main point of the Exodus will be, and the main point that Moses needs to know right now in his discouragement is this, behold your God. The what's of the past and the future show Moses and us the who of the present, the God who is, so that we might know him and enjoy him and trust him, not just yesterday and not just tomorrow, but today, right now, in this moment. What Moses, in his dejected state, needs most is God himself. And what we need most in our discouragement is God himself, not just the God who says, I was, not just the God who says, I will be, but the God who says, I am. So God teaches Moses about his divine ways, and he rehearses what he did in the past, what he'll do in the future, most importantly, who he is in the moment, present, accessible with him. And then finally, God gives us work to do. This is number five. Last point, God gives us work to do. We've already seen it in verse 6. This is a little summary of verses 10 to 13. We do learn in verse 9 that after this amazing word from God of reassurance and recommissioning to Moses, Moses goes back to the people and they don't believe him. It gets worse again. God's willing, if, willing for it to get worse even more. We'll come back to that in a minute. So then God says, skip the people. Go right to Pharaoh. And Moses' self-doubts endure. And he asks in verse 12, he says, Behold, the people have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This is a similar objection that Moses raised in chapter 4, verse 10, when he said, Oh, Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Maybe Moses is bringing up the same objection here that he raised in chapter 4. I suspect there's more to it, though. This is literally, this phrase of I am of uncircumcised lips, this is literally I am uncircumcised lips. I think Moses, for some reason, feels ashamed. For some reason feels, I am not a fitting mouthpiece for God. Whether it's shame over his past, whatever it would be, Moses doesn't think he's ready to be the mouthpiece of God. And there's times where God answers our questions, and there's times for addressing various objections, and there's some times where you just move on. Moses doesn't get any answer for this objection. God says, time's up for discussion, time's up for answering questions, for addressing objections. It's time to do the next thing, Moses. It's time to move on. It's time to get into productive work. And trust me that I'll restore your sense of confidence and joy as you trust me and obey. And so in verse 13, Moses is charged by God, along with his brother Aaron, 
to return to the mission. Verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of the land of Egypt. So Moses' shaken confidence doesn't keep God from using him. In fact, God calls Moses to do his most important and most intimidating work, speaking face-to-face with Pharaoh. When Moses manifestly doesn't feel ready or worthy of the calling. And God handles us similarly in our dejection, in our deep discouragement. There's a time to answer questions and address objections, but eventually it's time to do the next thing. It's time to fulfill your calling at home, fulfill your calling at work, in the neighborhood, in the church, as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a brother or sister or friend or employee or fellow Christian in community group. God means for us to keep moving in trust and obedience in answer to his clear objective callings in our life. When we feel dejected and discouraged, incompetent and inadequate, he means for us to keep moving and trusting him by faith. Going back to Pharaoh will require tremendous faith. This is a great risk for Moses. Pharaoh already said no and mocked him and increased the people's burdens. And yet, even in this emotional frailty that Moses has, even in his lack of confidence, God calls Moses to do the most important work of his life, which means when it's done, God will be glorified for his strength and power and not Moses, which is why this strange genealogy appears here. So, so odd to see what the author's doing here. The book of Exodus, Exodus began in chapter one, verses one to five, with a little mini genealogy. And now as we come to verses 14 to 26 of chapter six, we are in the very middle and heart of the Exodus story from chapters 1 to 13. And so here of all places, when Moses is dejected and discouraged, this is the turning point of the story. This is the solidifying of Moses' call. This is the beginning of Moses being God's instrument to do the work that he wants to do in Egypt. So the genealogy appears now. It's almost like a kind of intermission in the narrative. It's like a halfway point. And then we'll see next week as chapter seven opens, Moses moves forward in obedience. He turns the corner and then the dominoes begin to fall of God's deliverance of his people. So as we come to the table here, I'll mention briefly again, verse nine. After God has given Moses these amazing words of reassurance, and recommissioning in verses one to eight. Then in verse nine, <laughs> just another strange turn, right? Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So here it is again. This is just like God. This is God's surprising way. And that could have ended it right there. God very easily could have said, it's hard enough with the prophet. These people won't even listen to my prophet. I am done with these people. But God didn't give up on them. He knew their weakness, and he saw that in this instance, this unbelief was not high-handed, 
but that the people were down because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Even when the people failed him, our God was gracious to work salvation for them and not fail them. And so it was with Jesus. When he came to his defining moment and his most intimidating work, his disciples fell asleep while he prayed and they scattered when he was arrested. And yet Jesus continued on. Just as God continued on to save his people despite their not listening to his prophet, so Jesus continued on to secure for us this table and the salvation it represents despite his people's sleeping and scattering and denying him. And at the heart of the salvation that Jesus offers us at this table, the heart of what he offers us right now in this moment at the table is that in the present, in this moment, he is the great I am who not only promises to be with us, but says in this very moment, I am with you. So this is a meal for the people of Cities Church. But if you're a guest with us and you would say, I am his, and he is mine. He's my Lord, my Savior, my treasure. We'd invite you to eat with us. Pastors, would you come? We'll first distribute the bread, which is all gluten-free. We'll retain it and eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.